0: I know it may seem strange, and hopefully by the end it won't be strange to you, why I might call it the sufferings of Christ. Acts 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of... which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus a Macedonian from Thessalonica the next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for and putting out to sea from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us And when we had sailed across the open sea, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, sailing for Italy, and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete, off Salmon. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of La Silla. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the feast day was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to Paul and what he said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Kata. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the uh, service, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred This injury and loss. Yet now, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For the very this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, "Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men." For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Thus the soldiers cut the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having, taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then... They all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable. The stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest they should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first make for land. And the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighbor, neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with, two, with twin gods as figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there, we made a circuit and arriving at Regium, and after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Patoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard of us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. I want to say right up front that the big idea here is to me pretty clear. This is the idea, I think, that Luke wants us to walk away with today. We will fill up the sufferings of Christ while we eagerly live on mission to reach the ends of the earth. We will fill up the sufferings of Christ while we live on mission, eagerly live on mission, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. As we've already seen in the past few weeks, Paul is headed to Rome to face Caesar because he has boldly proclaimed the gospel in Jerusalem and in Caesarea before Claudius, Lysias, Felix, Festus, King Agrippa. He could have been released, according to Agrippa, because it's obvious that he hadn't done anything to deserve to be arrested. But during his trial with Festus, he made an appeal, and that appeal was to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he took his right to take his case before the highest court of the land, the court of the emperor. Festus says this, after hearing, he says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. After defending the faith before these men, these men of great political power, in Acts 26, Paul then, in Acts 27, begins the sea journey from Caesarea to Rome. First of all, I want us to see that Paul was eagerly on mission. He was eagerly on mission to take the good news to Rome. He's been that way since the very beginning, hasn't he? When Paul was miraculously saved in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, Jesus confronted him with the fact, and the fact was Paul, or Saul, Why are you persecuting who? Me. It's going to be so important today for us to understand. That Jesus views all persecution of his people as persecution of him. The suffering of Christ's people is so organically connected to the head who is Christ that when we suffer, we are, in a sense, suffering in Christ. We are suffering because of Christ. And Christ identifies that by saying, Paul, Saul, you're not chasing these people around the countryside because of who they are. You're attacking me. It brings back the words of Matthew 25 when Jesus said, Whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done it to who? Me. You've done it to me. I just want to stop right there. If you're a Christian here today, you're suffering. You're in a hard place. How comforting is it to know that Jesus accounts it as you with him? You're not alone. Christians never suffer alone. But when we suffer, we suffer with Christ Paul had been persecuting Christ through persecuting his people. But that's not all we find in Acts 9. In Acts line we get Paul's mission. This is what it says. Jesus, speaking to Ananias, says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer. He must suffer for the sake of my my name. Notice in the mission of Paul, there's two things that Jesus points out. Number one, he will proclaim the name of Christ. Number two, he will suffer. He will suffer because he proclaims the name of Christ. Jesus is not a bait and switch guy. He doesn't sign you up for a task and then hold back some detail and say, well, it was in the fine print. You know, if you come with me, you're going to suffer. Jesus said things like, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, if a man loves me, he will hate his father, hate his mother, hate his family, hate his his friends. He will love me. Jesus was very transparent with what it meant to follow him. He never held back not one thing. And in Paul's case, he explained it, Gentiles, Gentiles, Kings, the children of Israel, and when you do it, son, you will suffer for my name. This has been the goal of Paul from the beginning, to get to Rome. And this is true, Grace Fellowship, of all Christians. As we press out of our comfort zone and live radical lives on mission to proclaim, defend, and worship the name of Jesus, we will suffer for Christ This is not something that happened to some strange, bald-headed, bow-legged guy that stood in front of kings and talked about the gospel named Paul. This is something that happens to you and it happens to me. When we cast our lot with the Son of God, we cast our lot against the world in their eyes and them against us. We will suffer. We will suffer for the name of Christ. In truth, this is the suffering of Christ being carried out in our flesh. The persecution is against Christ. And the attacks of the flesh and of Satan are really about Christ. Don't hold yourself in too high of an esteem, in other words. If you face persecution, you really aren't that important. They're after the name of Christ. Your enemy sees through you to him. And every blow he throws against you, he believes he lands against the one who is your most treasured possession, Jesus Christ. That's what's going on in our text. That's what's going on in the life of Paul. That's what should be going on in our life. We can't escape the suffering encountered by Paul on on his three missionary journeys. Beatings, stoning, imprisonment, mob violence, disease, and much more. We have studied these things as we've made our way through Acts, and now we are face to face with even more of the same. One blow after the next blow after the next blow. Paul summarized it for us in his own words in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to these words. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman (laughs) with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings. Have you ever stopped to think about that? At the point that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, he had been beaten so many times that he's like, I don't even know how many there's been. Countless. And often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. We're going to read about one shipwreck, but there were two other ones. Which might be why he piped up and had some advice about what they should and shouldn't do, but no one cared to listen. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak, and I am not weak who is made to fall, and I'm not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. When Paul was told by Jesus Christ through the mouth of the prophet, you will preach my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, and you will suffer. Paul suffered from the beginning till the end of his Christian life. And yet listen to what he says in the letter to the Philippians, "But whatever gain I had, I counted it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing work of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of. Listen to this. Don't read past little words. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him. Everybody loves to put that on t-shirts. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection, they put that on the back. And the power of his resurrection. I don't see many t-shirts with the next statement. that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. A gospel that preaches freedom from suffering is a lie from the pit of hell. A gospel that promotes that you're going to somehow become greater, better, healthier, wealthier, wiser is a lie. Apostle Paul said, I suffer more than everyone, and I embrace the suffering because in that I know Christ. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He wanted to know Christ, his resurrection, and share in Christ's suffering. Grace Fellowship, the reality is that Paul was eagerly, on mission to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he understood that part of God's providential plan to get the gospel to the end of the earth was filling up the sufferings of Christ. And so he writes in Colossians chapter 1, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Now I rejoice in my suffering. When's the last time you rejoiced in your suffering? Now I rejoice in my sufferings. For your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you that make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to the saints to the God God. Who chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery which is in Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I told, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is why I'm saying that he is eagerly on mission to take the gospel to Rome. He wasn't looking at this ill-fated voyage as an awful thing to be dreaded. Paul had long before this embraced the fact that to go on a journey of being on mission with Jesus was going to cost him everything. He had already counted that cost. He had already counted everything else lost. So to go on a a voyage which the captain and everyone else seems to be foolish and we're going to end in a shipwreck did not surprise Paul, nor did it bother him. He remained joyful. He was fully aware of the cost of preaching the gospel in Rome, and it would mean he would suffer more. Paul embraced the suffering with great joy because it was in the suffering that he was most acutely aware of the presence of Jesus. Paul was not bitter at God for being on a ship in the middle of the Mediterranean facing death from shipwreck. He wasn't bitter at God. Paul was trusting in the providence of his good father who considered him worthy of suffering for the great name of Jesus. He was eager, and we should be eager to take the gospel to the whole world, knowing that it will cost us everything. The first thing we see in our text is that he is on a journey. You see it in the first part. All of the detail about how he went from Caesarea around the Mediterranean, all of the port cities, all of the places, it is meant to show us that this wasn't some simple cruise ship Paul got on to relax on his way to seeing the emperor. He was suffering in the journey. It wasn't about just getting to Rome and getting his head cut off. It was about being on the journey, suffering in Christ, filling that up so that all men might know who Jesus is and how great he is. And then arrive at Rome. And, and, and often we talk like that and then we say, and then the Hail Mary happens and you get rescued and it all turns out good. And Paul had no such illusion. He knew what was coming. All of this journey, all of this travail, all of this trouble. Why? Because the providential God of heaven had said, Son, you will preach my name among the Gentiles in front of kings and to my own children of Israel. And you will suffer much. So when he's in this condition, his mindset is one of joy and worship and thanksgiving. Paul trusted the providence of God and took responsibility while facing the danger of the journey. Paul understood and trusted the providence of God, and then he took responsibility. And I know that causes you to go, well, if God's in charge, then why do we do anything? Just sit back. You know, Why did he do anything? He should have just sat there the whole time. That's not what he does. We see the providence of God throughout this story. First, Paul is in this situation, a prisoner of Rome, because it was the will of the Lord. From Acts 21 on, we are reading about the journey of Paul to take the offering to Jerusalem. He gets falsely arrested in the temple. He speaks the truth to a Jewish crowd, which becomes an incited mob, has to testify, before the Jewish council, faces various leaders at all levels of government. And all of this is simply because he's doing what God called him to do. Have you ever suffered while you're doing what God called you to do? And you look around like, why is this so hard? I thought you wanted me to be here. That's that's our mindset. I'm facing opposition for doing what I thought God wanted me to do, so I must not be doing what God wanted me to do. Paul thought the opposite. I really do. He, He said, This is the mission. This is the call. So I will face suffering. I will face persecution. I will face roadblocks and obstacles and people who try to stop the mission from going forward. It's expected. It's going to happen. And we also know that after preaching the gospel to the Jews and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, at the end of verse 23, Jesus comes to him and says, Take courage. For you have testified the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And I know you think, and I think, when we read that, well, that makes it that's obvious then. That's obvious that if Jesus showed up and told me that, I would believe it. And then I wouldn't have a problem suffering. But here's the problem with your theory. You're like the brother who died and went to Hades and told Abraham, send. Someone back to warn my brothers not to come to this place. And Abraham told him the truest words from the mouth of Jesus. If they will not listen to this word, they will not listen to a dead man. And I will tell you this. If you think that Jesus appeared in your bedroom and spoke to you personally, you would respond any differently to that than you do to this. You're lying to yourself. This is the holy word of God. He has promised us Every promise, every promise right here. So if you think, well, if I was like Paul and Jesus showed up in a dream and then I would obey, you're lying to yourself. Don't be deceived. He has spoken to you. He has promised to you. He has commanded you. He has commissioned you, church. And if you won't hear it in these pages, on your knees in prayer with him, then you will not hear it if he comes in a dream. So we're no different than Paul in this way. Our God has spoken to us too. He gets this word in Acts 23. It's probably these words that prompt Paul when he's being tried by Festus to appeal to Caesar. I know it seemed like a bonehead mood to everybody on the outside. But, I mean, I almost feel like Paul at that juncture realized, like, this isn't going anywhere. And there's this chance, off chance, they're going to try to send me back to Jerusalem. That's not going to go good. I'll just go to Caesar. <laughs> i got to go there, so I'll go there. He knew he had to go to Rome. It was the will of the Lord to send him there as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. That's how he ended up on this ship sailing to Rome. So at the worst possible time of the year, they take off on their journey. There were four months in the Mediterranean world that no seamen went to sea. They didn't do it. Why? Because you shipwrecked. He ended up on a ship in the middle of the Mediterranean at the worst time. Why? Not by chance by the providence of God. So since Paul knows that he will eventually end up in Rome because of the promise and providence of God, does he simply sit inactive on the journey? Does he just sit back, sleep? No. I want to show you what he does. Look at verse 9 and 11 of chapter 27. Since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast had to be, uh, was already over. Paul advised them. So here's this man believing, I'm getting there one way or the other. I'm not going to die in the Mediterranean. I'm not going to die in the shipwreck. I can't die. God's going to take me to Rome because Jesus said it. But what does he do? He stands up and takes leadership. Based on the assurance and the faith he has in God, he stands up and takes responsibility for the voyage. And he speaks to Julius and the captain. Listen, guys. This voyage will be with injury and loss, not only of cargo and ship, but also of our lives. So does Paul believe he's going to end up in Rome? Yes. Then why does he say it's going to cost us our lives? Because he's taking action and taking responsibility based on faith in God. He's not deferring. He's not sitting back saying, well, it's all going to work out however it works out. No, he's like, hey, this isn't the best way to do it. We we shouldn't be in this sea." But the centurion listens to the man that's a pilot and the owner of the ship instead of listening to Paul. Why would he listen to some prophet preacher from Tarsus about sailing? What does he know? Well, he's been in the ocean. He's been in the sea, rather, 3,000 miles of voyage. Most most historians believe he had sailed 3,000 miles, which in the ancient world was a very experienced seaman. Paul had done these things. He had been in these places. As I said, he had already been shipwrecked. He already knew how bad it could go. He had experience, and experience was talking, but no one was listening. So what does he do? Does he say, okay, they won't listen. God's going to get me there anywhere. It'll work out for them. However it does, I'm going to sleep. No. Look at verses 21 and 26. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred injury and loss. Guys, I told you, from experience... From wisdom, don't do this. You did it anyway. Now we're in a bad spot. Okay? Let's be clear where we are. We're here because you made a bad choice. Yet now I urge you, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. Listen to the confidence, the utter confidence he has, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. What an intimate title. Not the God of the universe, the God of the creation, The God to whom I belong. He has taken charge of me and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid. Paul, you must go to Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all the lives with you. So take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have told you. But we must run aground on an island. Again, the responsibility he takes here is based on his belief in the providence of God. Paul is not thinking, if I don't say something, I'll die. He's also not saying they are not going to listen. God's in charge. I'm going to sit back. He takes the proper view of God's sovereign providence and his responsibility. I have something to offer, and I'm going to offer it. You didn't listen to me last time. Listen to me this time. Verses 30 and 32. The sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat under the pretense of laying an anchor from the bow. Paul said to the centurion, listen to these words, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Paul knew he was going to live, but he's telling them, straightforward. The word I got was we all got to stay together. Y'all are saved because God's saving me. Hear what I'm saying. God's providence had determined what was about to happen. But listen. The point of God's providence in this place is to protect and preserve the life of his son, Paul. The overflow of him protecting Paul is the other 275 people get to live. God loves his people so much he often sends rain. And when he sends it, it falls on his children and the non-children alike. Often God says, I'm going to end a war Because I have people and churches that need to be planted. And you know what the result of God ending the war for his people, for his church is? Lost people get saved in the midst. Our God is so generous and good, he overflows with kindness. To not just us, but to everyone else. This is a very bad example. I'm going to say it anyway, because I'm a preacher and that's what we do. We think up corny and bad examples and you suffer through them. It's not any different than me grilling outside my house and the smell of that filling the neighborhood. My intention is to feed my family and my children, but the neighborhood kid comes wandering up and he looks hungry. And I say, I got one for you too, buddy. God saved these wicked pagan sailors because he just has so much love to give. He has so much mercy to extend. He has so much abounding grace that it overflows and blesses those around us. Your presence in the world matters because it holds back the wrath of the Almighty God against this world. And so when they say we're non-essential, I say we're essential. When they say we don't make differences and we're a bunch of bigots, I say, no, we're not bigots. Sometimes we act like it because we're sinners, but that's not our intent. We're the preserving salt of this world and the light to the darkness. And without us, God would destroy the planet just like that. That's what we see in this text. God loves his children. He loves Paul, and he saves a whole bunch of other folks with him. (laughs) So what does Paul do? He continues to take action. Fourteen days later, everybody's hungry. They've been fasting. They've been probably a lot of seasickness going on. And Paul says to them, listen, guys, take bread. We're going to eat. And then he says, and when he said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate food themselves. Notice what Luke does here. He says... We were 276 persons in the ship. And when we had eaten, they lightened the ship, and they put the wheat in the sea. Here's the thing I want to say about that. Paul, in the midst of the biggest crisis, probably any of them have been into this point, takes time to take bread, practically meet the needs of the people around him, and he does it with courage, with calmness, with faith in God. He says, I'm going to break it like the Lord. This is a very discussed text. Some people say things about this text that I would not say, okay? Like, he was giving them the Lord's Supper. He was not giving them the Lord's Supper, but he was blessing the food, and he was giving thanks to God. And it looks a lot like when Luke records the feeding of the 5,000. The Lord did what? He gave thanks to God. He broke the bread. He gave it to all of them, and they ate to their fill, and they had leftovers, Later, Paul's taking on this same role. He's caring about the practical needs of the people around him. He's not just a spiritual walk, walking around with heavy, pietistic theology, separated from everyone else. He is practically engaged in real life, taking charge of the situation, giving leadership based on his faith in God and his responsibility to be a man of God in this situation. Some of us need to do the same thing in our homes, guys. I'm going to say that on Father's Day. I'm going to step on your toes a little bit, myself included. We need to stop being passive and being overrun by the things of this world and the things that are just catching our entertainments. And we need to get focused on the fact that God providentially put us in this place in our life. And I'm going to take responsibility over all that God has given me. That's what Paul does here. Don't ever use God's sovereign providence as an excuse to be lazy. Do not say things like, if God wants to save my children, he'll save them. I tell you this, he might not save them. How about that? Father, are you rising and praying for your children? Are you begging God at his throne that he save your children? Are you feeding them the word of God? Are you breaking bread and blessing the God of heaven with it and saying everything we have comes from him? If you're not, then you don't really believe in the providence of God. You believe in fatalism. It's a worldly philosophy. It has nothing to do with the Bible. God's providence does not excuse us, Christian. We must take charge, take responsibility, be leaders for him in every case in every situation that's what Paul does hey guys let's don't go on the journey oh you're gonna go on the journey okay well I'm not gonna get sulky and pouty and be a little girl about it and a little teenage girl about it and get some drama started I've got four of them listen I understand I love them all but there's just drama right I'm not gonna go gossip about them behind their back These guys are terrible leaders I don't know why we're on this ship he's an awful captain he doesn't know what he's doing who sails a ship through this kind of storm no, he just continues to b- rejoice in the Lord and do what God puts in front of him. Oh, hey, you didn't listen to me last time, but listen, we're going to live. Jesus has already told me, but we got to run aground on an island somewhere, guys. Let's be looking for it. Come on now. Then he says, hey, we're going to run aground and we're really weak. Let's eat. Thank God for this food. And he fed them all and they were all filled. And by the way, these guys in 42 through, 43, 42 through 44, they're about to get you killed. I'm living. If they get off the boat, you're going to die. Don't let them get off the boat. And look what the centurion does. With this persistent, this persistent confidence in God and in leadership, what does Julius do? He goes from not listening to Paul to saying, cut the ropes of the boat and keep them jokers on board. If Paul says it, it's going to happen. You want to be respected, men? Start living out the responsibility God's given you and godly people around you and ungodly a lot of times will begin to respect you. And finally, when the ship breaks up, they were going to kill him. Look, all those soldiers' lives were at stake. If the one prisoner escapes, the penalty was death. So it only makes sense. Kill them all on the ship, then we'll sail, we'll go to Malta. But because Julius favored Paul at this point in the journey. He had seen the man of God being the man of God. He had seen Paul. The Scripture doesn't have to tell us this. What was Paul doing every day? He was bowing on his knees before heaven, and he was praying. He was sharing the gospel with everyone on board. He was helping where he'll, he When they were tying the ropes, Paul wasn't down in the bull hole of the ship. I guarantee when they were tying the ropes around the, the thing to keep it together, you know what Paul was doing? He was tugging on the rope, buddy. He was pulling it in. He, was, he rolled up his sleeves. He had gone to work. And Julius said, hey, I respect you. And so he's joyfully, eagerly on mission with God. And he understands the balance between providence and responsibility. We see it in our text. Paul's suffering became a display of the power of God. So Paul then on Malta. Paul goes on to Malta, and when they get there, it's cold, and the natives welcome them providentially. I mean, they could have been cannibals, but instead of being cannibals, they're welcoming them. The last time I read a story about people from another place showing up at a place where the natives didn't know anybody was in the outside world, they all ended up dead, but by the providence of God, the people in Malta didn't do this. They saw them coming. They built a fire. They cooked them food. Paul, again, Paul, look how he leads it's through service. Paul doesn't go sit down and say, well, I've done my task. Y'all are all here because of me. No. He goes out and says, let me find some wood. I'm going to gather up bundles of wood. I'm going to help. I'm going to pitch in. and be a part. He throws it in the fire. And what's his reward for that? Because he hasn't. Here, here's our mindset. Surely he suffered enough. No. Now he's bit by a viper. Paul shakes it off back into the fire and <clears throat> They believe justice has found this man. They believe in faith. Justice has found him. He's a murderer, probably some terrible person. Then they all acted like little schoolgirls and started sharing rumors about Paul. And everybody gathered to see him die. And instead of dying, the great apostle fulfills the words of Jesus Christ, potentially in Mark 16 when he said, You'll be bitten by snakes and you will not die. (laughs) Fulfilled right here. He was bit by the viper. He did not die. He was perfectly healthy. And the power of God was displayed. And they began to bring, Publius was healed. And then they began to bring all of the sick of the island of Malta. And Paul healed them all in three months. The greatest acts that could have happened, happened under the providence of God for Malta. The people were all healed. They were set free from their sicknesses, their dysenteries, their their fevers. All for the power of God so he could proclaim the name of Jesus at Malta. That's what it says in in 10. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board all that we needed. I don't know if a revival broke out in Malta or not, but I know that the people were blessed by the man of God who stood on the Word of God, trusted in the providence of God, took action and responsibility where he needed to, and he never backed down, even in all the suffering. So then he arrives at Rome in 28. 11 through 16, and I want to zone in on 15 and 16. When we read the, this great passage, when we read this great passage, our minds should be filled with thoughts about the journey of being on mission with Christ. Listen to this. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns. I told the guys this week, I'm not planning personally plan another church but I would recommend somebody name their church Appius and Three Taverns just to just to make everybody in town show up and say what is that on seeing them I get overwhelmed thinking about this all of Acts has happened Paul sets foot on Italy's shore he comes into Rome you know there's got to be some anxiety. Like, what's going to happen? I've suffered, I've suffered, I've suffered, I've suffered. And when he looks up and sees the brothers coming, he just, thank God. You are so good. This is what it looks like for Christians to go through suffering. Not denying suffering. Not talking about it like it doesn't hurt. But in the weeping and the mourning, there's great joy to know that our God is with us. And he keeps giving us these good moments where we're blessed. And Paul did not take it for granted. He lifts up his hands and praises God and took courage. What the people did for him was give him courage that God was with him. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. God gave him providentially rest He gave him rest. Rest and some relaxation. We know he received many. We're not going to steal Ryan's sermon. He received many in this time. But we know what the end is, right? He's going to stand in front of Nero. He's going to get his head cut off. It's not over. Paul knows that. He's just living moment by moment in the good grace of God trusting his providence, acting responsibly. He's on the journey. He's doing what God's called him to do. And the fact is that this life we're called to live is not safe. It is not conformed to the norms of this world. And it will cost us everything. But as we fill up the sufferings of Christ, which is what I think this means, in other words, Christ suffered sufficiently. It's not that you're adding to, but you're displaying the sufferings in front of people who never saw him suffer. That's what it means to fill them up for the Gentiles. They didn't see Jesus hang on a cross, but they saw Paul beaten by rods and whips and stone and keep on getting up and going again and going again. When we do this, the watching world can see the goodness of our Father. Let us rejoice and eagerly die every day so that others may live for all eternity. I want to close by recounting another story of God's providence. It's hard for me to talk about this because I've read through this book. I think I finished it again, most of it this week. Again, I just got off on it last week. And getting ready for this sermon and then I couldn't put it down there was another man many years later after Paul's death who believed it was worthy to suffer and die for the gospel to reach people who had never heard on July thirteenth, 1813 Adoniram Judson arrived in Rangoon, Burma I won't get into all of his story. I I commend to you the book To the Golden Shore. That's the book I'm referring to. I've read it several times. And I weep every time I read it. This man was raised in a Christian home, went to Brown University, was led away from the faith by a man named Jacob. (laughs) Later that man died in a room next to him and then... And because of the sufferings of that man, a journey began, and he came to faith in Christ, went to Hanover, and heard the call to foreign missions, and he answered. As a Congregationalist, he was commissioned and left, which means he believed in infant baptism. To show you how studious he was as he studied the scriptures on the trip from where he was in New England to India, Uh, I'll say a kind of crass joke he got saved a second time, he became a Baptist under the conviction of nothing more than the scriptures. He was in such high integrity when he reached, when he reached India with, to meet William Carey, he sent his partner in the ministry back to report that he had no longer could be a Congregationalist. That man's name was Luther Rice, and Luther Rice spent the rest of his days raising awareness in the churches for the gospel to go to the un, unreached. So that's just a short bit. He has a very famous proposal that he gave to his wife and dad. If you're looking to not get married and get the blessing of a father-in-law, write the letter just like Judson did, and most dads in our day sadly will not give their daughter to you because what he said is, Do you commit to give your daughter to me that she might go and suffer, that she might go and never see you again in this life? that she might go and die a violent death. Her dad said, it's her, it's her choice. And thankfully, Ann said yes. And they sailed, and they landed July 13th, 1813. A few years before, he had decided to go to William Carey. And Carey actually told him when he started talking about Burma that he did not need to go to Burma because it was one of the most dangerous places in the world. But Judson believed he was called by God to take the gospel to this completely isolated and unreached peoples. Burma was dangerous because the people were violent. The climate was tropical. It was a petri dish of exotic diseases. They had been completely resistant of the gospel, and there were Bengal tigers, which would eat you. With God's help, Adoniram Judson was able to see, listen to this, one convert After six grueling years. One. Nineteen years later, he was able to write that there was a whole new spirit in the land. The people were coming from all corners. Nineteen years of labor. By the end of his life, he had seen a church planted, being led by indigenous people. He had translated the entire Bible into Burmese. And he had trained the next generation of missionaries to take the gospel even further into the land. Today, there are 3,700 Baptist churches in Myanmar, which is Burma. 617,000 Baptist Christians in Myanmar. 1.9 million people say Judson is our father. Isn't that amazing that God could work so powerfully to save so many through through the life of one man? What did it cost Judson to see all this fruit grow in his lifetime and even after his death? What, this is my question, what fertilized the ground from which all this gospel fruit was born? Massive, unrelenting suffering. Judson said this, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. You want to make it through this life, Christian, without compromising what you say you believe you got to trust in the providence of a good and loving and infinite loving God. And then you got to take responsibility to go on his mission, and he will be with you. Here's some sheer facts for you. Anne or Nancy, as he was, she, she, she was called, bore him three children. All of them died. One died at birth, nameless. The other, Roger Williams Judson, lived 17 months and died. Maria lived two years and died. She died six months after her mama died. June 8, 1924, Judson was put in prison because the government at Ava believed he was a spy. The prison was almost unbearable. At night, a bamboo pole was put through his shackles, all the prisoners, and they were lifted up off the ground till only their shoulders and their head touched the ground. This is the way they were made to sleep so that the guards could go lay in their bunks and not worry about escape. What was his crime? Preaching the gospel. Anne walked two miles every day while pregnant to visit him and give him food. If she hadn't, he would have died in prison. He was kept in prison until he was just mysteriously released one day with no explanation. When he got out, Anne died October the 24th, 1826, and then little Maria died April the 24th, 1827. He went into a great depression, went into the interior of the country. Some thought he would even... Just let himself die out there. But he got news that his brother had died and it cheered him. Because his brother had been lost and had come to Christ and would be in heaven. And so he returned to camp. He remarried on April the 10th, 1834 after suffering severe depression. He married Sarah, who was the widow of another missionary who had already died in Burma. They had a happy marriage, which saw them blessed with eight children. Five lived. Sarah became ill with fever and Judson decided to try to help her by taking a sea voyage, which is what they believed would help, and they went to the United States. This was the only time Adnan Judson left Burma to visit home. Instead of getting better on the voyage, Sarah became sicker and sicker. Her children said goodbye. She wasted away, and she died. Judson buried his wife on the coast of Africa. And then he sailed back to the United States with his five children. He met there in New England a young lady. He was in his 50s. She was in her 20s, Emily. He needed a young, strong woman to help him on the field. And June the 2nd, 1846, they got married, and they had two children. The first one died. The second child died four months after Judson died. Judson developed fever and dysentery. He left Emily and their child to try and find relief on a sea voyage. And for a little bit, it seemed to work. And then on April the 12th, 1850, at 4.15 in the afternoon, Adniram Judson reached the Golden Shore. As he was dying, some of his last words recorded were how few there are who die so hard. For fear of disease, the captain of the ship put him in a coffin, gave the latitude and longitude, opened the port, and pushed his body into the sea. Jesus did not call us to join on a cruise ship journey of amazing photo ops until we reach the kingdom. Grace Fellowship, our Lord has bid us join him on the journey of suffering and sacrificing and surrendering to the joy of the fellowship of the one who died so that we might live forever. (laughs) Who of us will rise up and go? How will we all live with a wartime mentality that allows them to go? All of us are called to fill up the sufferings of Christ so that the power of God is displayed through the joyful and eager proclamation of the good news to the ends of the earth. You may never go to a place like Burma. That's okay. But are you willing to suffer in prayer? Are you willing to sacrifice everything you've got so that others can go? So that when we reach that golden shore, there might be faces there who would say, I have found my way here by the providence of God and the responsibility that you and your church took to get the gospel to me. This is our hope and our mission. This was the mission of Paul. This is why a sea voyage that ends in disaster is really an opportunity for the furtherance of the gospel because we serve a good God who provides all we need and has us on his mission. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time, we think about you and your goodness to us, your work in us. And we confess that our minds, often our hearts are so torn And distracted mine is, I ask you to help. Help us to live this life of wartime mentality that it takes. The people that are unreached today are unreached because they're in hard places. They're dangerous people. And most people that go to them will face suffering, even death. And so, Lord, help us not to be cowards. Lord, help us to give our best to this cause. And while we're giving our best, may we give our all to you every day in this life right here in Calhoun County that all of your children might be gathered from all tribes and tongues and places that you might receive the ultimate praise and glory of a body that is fully and perfectly made. You have promised and we know you will deliver. We pray these things in your name. Amen.